Welcome to Tampa Tantrum, The Lost Files. Back in the summer of 2012, myself, Stephen Layton, and Colin Harmon hosted a group of 12 coffee luminaries to come present on a coffee topic of their choice at the SCIE World of Coffee event in Vienna. This was not the first time we'd put on such an event, but it was the first time we didn't have control of the AV crew for the production. The previous two events, we collated sets of videos, which can all be viewed at tampatantrum.com. But in Vienna, something went horribly long with the quality of video we had. Although something gets lost without the visuals, I decided, instead of them being lost forever, that I would make them available in audio format. This is number six in the series. Please give it up for the 2012 Brewers' Cup champion, 2011 and 2012 WBC finalist, Mr. Matt Perger. Someone. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Um, hello, everyone uh, in Vienna and also on the internet. Um, sorry, I've got my notes here today, but uh, I've had to remember a lot this week. Um, so here we go with macrophobia. Um, there are a lot of coffee professionals, uh, myself included, who are suffering or have suffered from something I like to call macrophobia. Um, this is a little term that I've recently coined. Um, that can be boiled down rather easily. Um, it covers a number of attitudes and mindsets found um, in and around the specialty coffee industry. And it's an unreasonable fear of a specialty coffee business of any type growing larger than the norm. So its symptoms can include uh, disliking a roastery for gaining too many accounts, uh, not believing an espresso bar can make 1,200 cups of perfect coffee a day, uh, proclaiming that microlots are the only way to, for delicious coffee, um, and my pet hate, which is relying on human instinct when a machine can do the job just as well. So we all know a macrophobe, and to some extent, we all probably are one ourselves. Um, but why? What's wrong with growth? Um, it seems to be such a taboo in and around the specialty coffee industry. Um, can we only achieve greatness by being tiny and artisanal? Um, so I'm here to talk about growth and why it isn't such a bad thing. Um, so let's assume from now on that our one overriding goal is to produce the best cup of coffee that anyone has ever had. Makes you laugh, makes you cry, changes your life. Cup of sex. It's amazing. That's going to be our goal. Um, we're not in it for the money, we're just in it for the coffee. Um, the problem is, we're not quite there yet. No one is maybe three or four coffees a year enter this zone of excellence. Um, to achieve this lofty pinnacle more often, a few things are going to have to change, and they have to. Um, we need to make every cup as close to perfect as possible. This is really hard. We need more people drinking that coffee every single day. This is slightly easier, but still hard. Um, the worst part about it is that we need to keep it special. And that's really hard. Uh, achieving those three things all at once uh, is almost impossible. And we know this because no one's really done it yet. Uh, it's not impossible. If we want to evolve as an industry and achieve all of these wonderful things, I believe we have to grow. We have to. There's no other way. 
And a lot of people won't really agree with me on this, and I'm totally okay with that, and I'm ready for hard questions afterwards or any curveballs that Anthony Bender has for me. We have to shed our macrophobia, step beyond the age of the micro-roastery and into the age of the macro-roastery. So let's start with green. I'm going to divide my case into three parts, green coffee, brown coffee, and liquid brown coffee. Um, in each, I'll be tackling the most common arguments that a macrophobic professional would have against growth. So, green coffee. Buying green from producers or exporters is awesome. Almost everything about it is great. Uh, relationships, quality, freshness, traceability, speed, exclusivity, everything. It's all amazing, and it's everything that macrophobes seem to demand from specialty coffee businesses. Um, but there's one thing that I've noticed about buying green coffee that is kind of hard. Uh, for those of you who don't really deal in buying or selling green coffee, imagine putting $150,000 in a box, and then you don't see that box for eight weeks, and then when you open the box, you can only take the money back out as quickly as you can roast it. Um, this sucks. It's financially crippling, and our accountant hates us for it. And if we weren't big enough to afford a container of coffee, it'd be completely ridiculous and impossible for us to do more than one a year. Um, you need healthy growth behind a business to give you that healthy bank account. And if you don't, then you can't even think about buying green coffee. So as a business grows towards about three tons a week of roasted coffee, um, this process starts to become a lot more financially viable and repeatable, which is really important. Um, eventually, all of the green coffee arriving at a business can actually become directly traded and ticks every single box that a discerning macrophobe might demand from them. Um, but this kind of volume I'm talking about demands a closer relationship with the producers. Um, you're paying more money into their pockets, um, there's less exporters, there's less middlemen, and there's more transparency. Um, you're in control of where the money goes. You can even invest directly in raised drying beds, like I know Tim Wendelboe did in Kenya. You can invest directly in a farm's community. Um, but without the money and the growth behind a business, you cannot do these things. Um, and this is the stuff that truly makes a difference and can only happen once a business develops some serious volume. Um, and I've got an interesting example of how this ma macrophobic uh, mindset has sort of extended all the way back to the farmers themselves. Um, back in March, I was in Costa Rica on a buying trip, um, and we talked to a lot of farmers about the usual stuff, quality, cleanliness, 84+, plus, et cetera, et cetera, traceability, are you happy? Yes, I'm happy, great. Um, and then we started asking them, okay, cool, can we have 150 bags of that? And then we got all these blank stares, and everyone, all the farmers were like, well, uh, we, I thought you wanted 20 bags. Uh, you want 20 bags of this, 20 bags of this, and 20 bags of this? And we were like, no, we want 150 bags of something. And all the farmers were sort of looking at us really weirdly. Almost all the farmers we met were under the impression that specialty coffee buyers only wanted 20 bags of something, or it wasn't a micro lot, and it wasn't special enough. Um, and these producers had thousands of fenegas of extremely high-quality coffee, um, and it was all really similar, like really similar. I wouldn't be able to tell if they blended it, most of it together. There were some outliers that you could separate out, but the majority, if you blended it, honestly, I would not be able to tell them apart. Um, now, I don't want to bore you with the advantages of splitting up production like that. They need to do it for quality control. Um, what I'm thinking of is a balance. Um, 
farmers shouldn't just throw everything together and they shouldn't separate everything apart. Um, a healthy balance between micro lot and macro lot is great. Um, and some other things start to happen. It allows us to have a blend or an offering that lasts for at least 10 weeks. Um, it's consistent. We get better at roasting it each day. The label stays the same, which is really annoying for anyone who's ever operated a roastery. Um, the label stays the same, the customers become familiar with its preparation, and they don't get really annoyed when they have to learn a new blend every three weeks. Um, sadly, um, in Melbourne at least, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but the number of seasonal blends that actually last more than four or five weeks in one iteration is really small, um, and it doesn't actually need to be like that. Um, simply put, for green, growth is going to help us buy better green more often, letting us produce more consistent offerings that last longer and taste better. Coffees arrive fresher and they're used sooner. And the producer-roaster producer relationship is really strong. Um, so I don't really understand what's not to like about that. Um, that's a pretty simple section. Um, so now, I apologize for the brevity of that. Um, I'm pretty rookie in regards to green coffee, but there's a few things that I've noticed. Um, so now, onto the roastery stage. Um, when a roastery grows, Everything changes, everything scales up, the whole operation becomes a new entity. Um, and we've all seen something happen time and time again. A uh, really high quality artisan micro-roaster gets really popular, starts producing way too much volume, and then their quality starts to suffer. And then everyone starts to say, well, it must be because they grew big. Um, I don't think it's because they've grown big, I just think it's because they haven't really approached it in the right way. Um, when the, underlying business, when the underlying goal of a business is to create better coffee, um, it can be a really amazing transformation. Um, artisan small batch coffee is great, and I love it, but doing five tons a week of artisan coffee is so much better. Um, now, I've noticed a lot of roasteries who are doing larger volumes say they're doing less, and the ones who are doing less seem to brag about it. Um, and it's kind of bizarre, and... Uh, a year or, year or two years ago, uh, Jeff Watts called it outsmalling each other. All the roasteries in specialty coffee seem to be trying to outsmall one another rather than outgrow each other. Um, and I think he really hit that nail on the head. Um, does coffee magically lose points when it's roasted in bigger equipment? Does cup of excellence instantly become cup of mediocrity when it's roasted on a 90 kilo roaster? Why wouldn't you want more people drinking your coffee if it's still just as delicious as it was if you were small? Now, larger volumes of production forces you to meet higher levels of customer support, reliability, and consistency. Why not quality as well? Um, there's lots of ways to improve roasting. We all know this, it's terrible. Um, but there's one that I think that would really make a big change. Um, we need to embrace process controls, and scientific method in the roastery. We need solid data, numbers, and metrics, because real science doesn't lie. Um, there's so many people that approach coffee roasting as an art that can't be taught, and I couldn't disagree more. With larger volumes, you have to find a way to make roasting more consistent when there's different people in control. It cannot be an art. It has to be a science. So, when a new employee hops on your roaster at work, there's only one thing that changes. The equipment is the same, the coffee is the same, the moon is still aligned with Venus, the humidity is the same, you're still in the same building, there's still gas going into it. There's only one thing that's changed, and that's the operator. 
Human control equals human error. If we remove the human, we remove the error. So I propose that the most consistent way to, to roast coffee is with process controls, which pretty much comes down to a computer controlling your roaster, which is pretty heinous. A few people kind of winced just then when I said that. Uh, employ a head roaster who manipulates those roast profiles and locks them into a system that can repeat them time and time again. Then he doesn't have to sit in front of, front of the roaster roasting the coffee. He can go and do quality control on the batches that are being made while he's not there. Um, reducing operator error means that you have your best and most skilled employees spending less time sitting in front of a hot spinning drum and more time making the coffee taste better. Um, so now that you've got an automated roaster, you've saved two assistant roasters' salaries, which is enough to buy a packaging machine. And then once you've got a packaging machine, you've saved two packers' salaries, which is about $200,000 a year that you've saved. Um, and you can either take that as profit or you can reinvest that back into quality. Um, and this is where staff starts to come into it really heavily. Um, you could hire an account manager to give wholesale clients a hug when they're feeling sad. You can hire a quality control manager to make sure everything's 100% all the time, every day. You can even hire a research and development professional to keep your business ahead of the game. There's nothing stopping you once you start growing and using these systems in a roastery. Um, okay, so staff, um, as we are. In Melbourne, at the moment, there's a really big problem and no one's really talking about it. Um, and it's probably happening all around the world as well. Um, there's so many baristas and roasters in Melbourne experiencing a really big and impenetrable ceiling over their careers. Some people laugh because it's a little bit like musical chairs in Melbourne at the moment. There's so many staff moving between barista and roaster roles in different businesses, but they're just doing exactly the same thing as they were before. Grass is green on the other side, I'll move there. No, I think I'll move over here now. Grass is greener here. It's just baristas sort of moving in a weird musical chair fashion. Um, they're all hopping between jobs because they're frustrated with their current position or they're just sick and tired of making hundreds of chinos and hundreds of production roasts each week. Um, and it's really sad to see because there's so much passion and drive from these people that's just going to waste because it has no room to grow or flourish. Um, and you can probably guess what my next word is going to be. Uh, it's growth. It's undoubtedly the best way to create opportunity within a business. Um, staff can look forward to new roles and responsibilities. Um, they feel rewarded and part of a family. A large and successful business can create real careers for its staff. And this is so amazingly important that I couldn't stress it enough in a 20-minute speech. Um, waking up in the morning and knowing that I have a future in my place of work and there's no ceiling over my head is unimaginable before I got it, before I achieved that feeling. Um, when I get to work, all I want to do now is make it better than it was before, stay there, improve everything that's going on because I have no limits and there's no ceiling over my head. Um, so I'm going to give you a real life example of how this works for me um, at St. Eileen Sensory Lab in Melbourne. Um, for me, my main motivator is knowledge. I want as much knowledge as I can get to be the best at whatever I do. That's how I roll, that's what I want in life. Um, so my employers have taken this and then created a role for me um, which suits what I want with where they want to go. Um, so I have a salary as per normal, but I also have something which we've called a learning fund on top of my salary. And this allows me to travel 
um, create learning-based initiatives and grow as a professional. And I'll be really honest when I say I've learned more in the last six months than I have in the last three years in specialty coffee because of it. Um, the only catch, which isn't really a catch, is that I then need to share everything that I learn with my colleagues. Um, and that's okay, I'm totally, totally happy with that because they're allowing me to learn it in the first place. Um, so what we've done is we've started an, an initiative at St. Ali where every barista in the cafe spends two hours every week off bar with me, geeking out, dialing in coffees, learning about they want to learn. Um, when I go home from here and all the things that I've learned with Brewers Cup, I'll be sharing that with them. And it's just a really good environment of continual learning and improvement. Um, they're not stuck on the bar all day, every day, pumping out the chinos. They can step back and start to be involved in the coffee industry as well. And they respond really well to such a unique environment. Um, and that's the same in the roastery as well. The roasters get travel allowances. They go to origin each year. They learn what they will as they want to. Um, and without growth, we'd never be able to afford these luxuries. We would never be able to afford for me to fly over here to do a speech or learn how to do Brewer's Cup. Um, there's just so much potential that can be unlocked with growth. Um, so if any of you are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, it emphasizes the importance of something called self-actualization. Um, and this is a process of growing and developing as a person in order to achieve individual potential. Um, without growth, a business can never offer this level of self-actualization to its staff and it will forever be playing musical chairs. Um, so that's making the brown stuff. Now for the liquid. Um, this is where I spend most of my time. Um, it's what I'm most passionate about. So it's really easy, um, and there's a really nice little equation uh, for an espresso bar and how growth helps. Greater volume equals greater profit. Tick. Um, essentially, more money you can invest back into quality. But if you were to read this equation literally, you'd think that bigger espresso bars would be more consistent at making coffee. Um, no, you're shaking your head. <laughs> uh, they're not. Um, they're almost always less consistent than smaller bars. Um, but why? Uh, it's actually because they have more baristas. Uh, once again, human error is compounded when you employ more baristas, and once again, it's screwing with your quality. Um, Instead of harping on about the, uh, the benefits of growth in this section, I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about how we're tackling the problems associated with the growth, because um, we all know that growth is good on an espresso bar. Um, we need baristas to make coffee the same way. And when I say the same way, I don't just mean walking up to an espresso bar, watching a shot, and going, yes, that looks good, tick. Um, an espresso bar with two baristas is really consistent because there's only two baristas on it. An espresso bar that sees eight different faces each week is really hard work, but we're slowly learning that it's doable. Um, essentially, eight people need to be able to make 5,000 drinks exactly the same way every single week. Um, and that sounds easy, um, but it's quite hard. Um, to do this, everything that can be controlled and repeated should be without fail. On an espresso machine, for example, um, your doses need to be within half a gram of your target every single shot, and your yield, which is the weight of your double espresso, needs to be within one gram of your target every single time. Um, and I'll get back to that in a minute um, because it's pretty much impossible. 
Um, so water quality, grinder burrs, machine temperatures, pressures, flow rates, etc., all need to be not just monitored, but logged and controlled weekly. You can't just look at it and go, yeah, I guess the water is a little bit harder this week. Cool. That's going to change the way the coffee tastes. Um, what you need to do is similar to what I've recently started doing at St. Ali, and I've started data mining the espresso bar. So five to ten times a day, the baristas will type in a bunch of numbers on an online form on an iPad next to the espresso bar. Um, and they're telling me a lot of different things about the coffee at that time. Um, I can look at an online document on my phone at any time of day, anywhere, and tell you our dose, yield, extraction time, tasting notes, coffee type, roast date, group temperature, who made it and what they thought about it, and if they changed anything for the next one. And that's five to ten times a day from each barista as they do it. Um, and it's real rich data that I can actually start to crunch. It's not just me walking onto the bar, tasting an espresso, saying yes or no, and then walking away. This is pages and pages and pages of numbers with timestamps and real info that I can start to use. Um, from this data, I can tell you some really cool stuff. I can tell you that one standard deviation of our brewing ratio in the store is 1.47 to 1.53. I can tell you that the brewing ratio increases as the coffee gets older. And I can see that if the extraction times trend upwards, uh, someone else has been on the roaster because it's slightly darker. And then I can go and ping the roasters in the roastery for doing something different. I can tell you Shin, my head barista, averages a brewing ratio of 1.49, and Sue averages a brewing ratio of 1.53. Um, these are real numbers from day-to-day -day espresso bar work, um, and the baristas are providing me with them. Um, and that's information that I can then make real, informed decisions about, not just whimsical waves of the hand to change policy. Um, and this is just the beginning. It's still pretty fledgling, but I have plans to roll it out into our five... In five internal stores and then eventually into our external stores. And this is going to give me some real numbers, some serious data. Um, and I think we're going to uncover some crazy things about espresso that no one really knew before. And we're going to have a really firm grip on how everyone, uh, all of our wholesale accounts at least, are making espresso. Um, we've got a long way to go, but this scientific method, statistical approach to coffee brewing is the future. Um, get amongst it or you will be left far, far behind. Um, so earlier, I made the claim that every double espresso weight needs to be within one gram of your target, and this is impossible um, if you rely on humans to stop the shots. Um, one of, uh, sorry, a lot of people think it's impossible, um, and it is. And this is one of the biggest macrophobic trends of all time in the specialty coffee industry, is relying on humans to stop espresso shots. It's silly. Uh, claims have been made that it gives the barista more control over the espresso machine, and this is 100% correct and also 100% unnecessary. Um, no barista on the planet can eyeball 800 espressos in a day with anything near one gram of accuracy. I would pay good money to see a barista that can stop 800 espresso shots within six grams of each other on a busy espresso bar. I would pay really good money to see that because it's hard. You cannot do it. We're human, we suck at it, and that's that. Um, I'm going to let you in on a dirty little secret. Um, there's a feature on almost every commercial espresso machine that can stop your shots accurately every time. There's like two amazed faces in the audience. Um, 
it's pretty revolutionary, especially when it was released in 1833. Uh, <laughs> you may have noticed little buttons on your espresso machine with cups on them. There's like one cup half full, another cup with a lot of liquid in it, and then two cups, and then two cups. Um, they're called volumetrics, and they work a whole lot better than you think they do. Um, this is macrophobia at its finest, taking a task that a machine performs perfectly well all the time, all day, every day, and putting it in the hands of a human. Um, it's, yeah, bizarre. So there are three high-end specialty espresso bars that I'm familiar with, um, which use these buttons. There's St. Ali in South Melbourne, there's Cafe Myriad in Montreal, and there's Air Coffee in Sydney. And funnily enough, these are also three of the most consistent espresso bars that I know of in the world. <clears throat> it's not because their baristas are watching every shot, it's because they've left that task to volumetrics in their espresso machines. Um, so I can walk onto the, the espresso bar at St. Ali any time of day and randomly weigh an espresso. I can take one cup out of the side, I can wait until the baristas aren't watching and then steal an espresso from them. If they think I'm not there, I can walk up quickly and then just take an espresso and weigh it. Every single time it's within one gram of what they wanted for the day. Um, this is the first time I've ever been able to do that on an espresso bar. Um, there's no way we could have done that by relying on baristas. Um, and it's not because the baristas, uh, sorry, excuse me. Um, the baristas now, they're not standing around watching shots. They're actually worried about things like uh, customer service and, uh, sorry, like speed, customer service, doing other things other than standing around with their hand on a handle doing this while there's 10 dockets on a rail and then switching it off once it's done. Um, please learn how to use the volumetrics on your espresso machines um, and you will reap the benefits. Human control equals human error and it's just another problem we do not need when we're dealing with such a ridiculously complex product like coffee. Um, so there it is, that's almost 20 minutes. Um, it probably wasn't enough to fit all of that in. Um, I was probably a little bit under time. Um, I hope I've been at least a little bit successful in removing growth from the naughty words list. Um, and I'm even more hopeful that growth can be something that we can strive for together and celebrate amongst ourselves. Um, if we want to evolve, it's the only way. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, let's sit down. <clears throat> I think it's just the two of us now. Cool. Um, thanks for that. Very interesting. Um, got a few notes here. Good. Um, I was sort of really interested in what you were saying about when you were in Costa Rica and you were asking of the farmers to put together 150 bags for you. Yeah. What were the 20 bag lots split up as, was it varietal splits or uh, it was normally or? Uh, Most of it was pretty consistent varieties. Um, a lot of the farmers are planting pretty similar stuff over there. It was mainly uh, batches through their mills. So it would be like the lot eight of yellow honey from this farm or the lot nine. Um, and also in some farms uh, like Finca El Kizara, um, which is attached to the, uh, what was it? The Adindaromas micro mill. Um, she had organized her whole farm based on geography. So she'd split off lots of different micro lots around the farm um, and then separated them like that. So she had names for them, not just numbers. Okay. So it depended on what the farmer wanted, I guess. And, and you guys are looking to have um, a more uniform lot? Yeah. Rather than having those 
splits? Yeah, well, we, we are looking for like larger lots, not necessarily to make it more uniform. Um, we still like coffee to be um, like unique and special. Um, it's just that it seemed to us as we were cupping through all of these lots that they were incredibly similar. Um, and it was great that they had separated them and we congratulated them on their efforts for it. Um, but we think that sometimes if you're buying a coffee that you want to create an espresso blend with and you want people to learn and grow and love, um, you do need to have a little bit more volume. Yeah, I, I, I can kind of see where you're coming from. Um, but I think um, from my sort of limited experience in this, I think it's been really educational for me um, to see such stark differences between coffees yeah. grown in different areas. Obviously, varietal for me is, is, is normally really different processing, of course, as well. Um, I think picking date as well is a is a big one. Yes. Um, do you think that it's possible that um, roasters on a larger scale are able to still keep these lots separated and to sell them on like this, even though it is a bit of a nightmare? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we have a container from Costa Rica coming soon, which has a lot of similar lots like that, which we've deliberately kept separate um, because those are, for us, they're going to be our special um, adventure. Um, lots of coffee um, and then we also have our larger lots which we will use as um, blend components or as something quite consistent so we try to celebrate both um, and so you, you're also talking about the roasting process and uh, sort of methods to yes. ensure consistency what what kind of systems are you using at, at Sonali at the moment? Uh, we, we still have fairly manually controlled roasters um, but we are all of the opinion that as we grow further, we're going to have to start using process controls. Um, I have extremely limited knowledge about process controls. I've only dabbled in some programs, but there's a lot of promise if used correctly. I'm not saying it's a press the button, roast the coffee, and everything will be great. It's, I think it's going to be a lot of hard work to tame the computers and um, get them to learn what we need, want out of them. But I think it's where it needs to go. And until that happens, what, what sort of um, systems are you using now uh, in terms of like quality control? and We use, uh, on one of our roasters, we use Roastlog, um, which, is, which is fairly good. And then we also use, um, Joe Ahead Roaster has developed a lot of um, profiles for the coffees, sort of markers, times, certain um, processes that he goes through when he roasts a batch. Um, and it's very consistent as it is, but if he breaks his leg, what are we going to do? Yeah. yeah. Um, is there sort of reliable automated roasting systems around at the moment that you I'm know not of? Sure. Yeah. I haven't. I couldn't make a strong opinion on anything about yeah. that yet. Um, I think uh, your learning fund, as part as your as part as your package, sounds uh, really intriguing. Yes. Um, Beyond the sort of origin trips, what other kind of things are you spending this uh, uh, So, at the moment, uh, some things that I've spent it on have been uh, like developing this iPad sort of thing um, for the baristas and also uh, some equipment, some like sort of out of left field equipment just to see if we can start to make things better, like different grinders, different, um, just trying to work totally left of center to see if we can uh, improve things on the bar or um, just try something new and unco uncover something that other people might have missed. 
I remember speaking to you in Melbourne a few months ago, and I think you'd just come up with the idea of spending two hours with each of the baristas yes. per week. And at, at the time, it was sort of a bit of a headache. Have yes. you sort of wrapped your head around that? Is yeah. It, is it working out well? It's good. I think uh, initially I wanted to really um, control it um, and have it very structured. But if I did that, I would then be spending three days a week organising it and one day a week doing it. Yeah. Um, so it has to become a lot more freeform and what they want to do, where they want to go, rather than what I want them to do. Um, and is it always one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, someti like, sometimes I can be like, Jamie, go and figure that out. Like, here's, an, here's a cool experiment for you to figure out. Mm. I really need to go and do this right now. Yeah. Um, and he's like, yeah, cool. And then he comes back to me with um, results and yeah. then we can lock that down. And are you doing like tastings and, and training sessions and yeah, that like, kind of thing as a group as well? As a, yeah, on the bar as a group usually. Yeah. Like, there's some days where we have a lot of the baristas on, um, and there's times of those days when it's quite quiet, so we can really start to knuckle down as a team. Um, and when there's new coffees as well, we like to give them a heads up of what's going on rather than here's a couple of kilos of coffee, enjoy. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah, it's very it's very good, and I think they're really responding really well to it because it's totally different. And the the data collection with yes. the iPad by the espresso machine. How long have you been doing that for? Not very long at all. Okay. It's super new, but already yeah. I'm starting to see numbers and trends which we yeah. didn't think yeah. were happening. What kind of stuff are you taking from it? Uh, so recently we've started, uh, we normally brew our coffee when we dial it in, we start the day off at 93 and a half degrees for espresso. Um, when it gets busy, we're now at 88 um, and it's fine. Uh, coffee, our coffee was always tasting dry um, when it got busy. And we thought that's because the machine got dirty, but it's not because the machine got dirty, it's because the grinders are getting hot. Right. So you need to track the heat of the grounds because that changes um, your equilibrium temperature across your whole extraction. Okay. So now instead of just cleaning everything all the time, um, which is a quick fix because the handle cools down because you've got it out of the machine, um, we've actually started to make a big sweeping change. And now our coffee tastes as good while we're getting slammed as it does when we're having a quiet morning. Mm. Who, who's actually... Apart from you, is anybody else uh, crunching this data? And who's sort of making the executive decisions on changing the, the, the yeah. espresso machine down to 88 degrees? Um, I give the baristas a fair bit of freedom to do things like that. Um, and if one of them was like, yeah, yesterday we tried this and it worked, I'd, I'd be like, great, cool, good on you. Um, but usually if I put my foot down on something, um, that's the way it is um, until it can be properly proven otherwise. So we like to... We like to knuckle something down scientifically and go, great, we all agree, this is the smartest, most intelligent way we could have done this. Uh, please prove us wrong. Um, so normally it's me. Um, at the moment, I'm just crunching the numbers because we haven't got that much yet. But I'd love to release it to other people to see what they can find from it. Is anybody else doing anything similar to this? Not that I know of, no. Yeah. yeah. So how long have you actually been running it for? Uh, less than like a matter of weeks rather okay. than months yeah. yeah but it was just like uh, one day of data that I looked at that was amazing mm. so I can only imagine what weeks and months and years will start I, I've to always found it quite difficult um, sort of gathering data and understanding it um, for me to read that data probably would be a bit of a mind fuck. Yes. I don't think I'd be able to sort of take a huge amount from it. No. Um, because it's it's very much, it seems it's very much based on the fact that there's, say, eight baristas mm. 
they all, unless they're very, very, very calibrated, I can imagine the human error will then come into it again. Yes. So somebody, I mean, even amongst baristas that I work with, um, we'll, ha we'll have sort of slightly divided opinions on how's the acidity, you know, is the body right, you know, is this too long, yeah. is this too short, that kind of thing. So I guess it'll be a, a real sort of work in progress. And Yeah, and yeah. that's why I also put in, you have to put in who you are when you put in the data so I can isolate you yeah. and see what you're doing and then bring that back into the bigger picture as well. Because um, I think if it was just left as anonymous, it could be quite messy. I can imagine. <laughs> Um, so when when do you think St Ali will be completely full of robots and yeah the, that's that one thing I'm worried about all, yeah um, I, like I still give them a lot of freedom like when we have a we usually have a blend and a coffee of the day and I just go go wild with the coffee of the day do whatever you want yeah. Um, just yeah go crazy um, just as long as it tastes good please um, so I'm trying to stay away from the robot um, thing as much as possible. Um, but I think a lot of baristas, especially one of my baristas, Sue, um, as he's learning all these things about being more consistent, he's actually getting more satisfaction about being more consistent with the other baristas than being an individual as such. So it's, I think it's the getting the right people as well. And, and this is mostly talking about espresso at yes. the moment? At the moment, it's just espresso, but okay. I really want to do it with filter coffee as filter well. Filter coffee, okay. Yeah. And, and how often are your baristas like in, in cupping sessions and how involved are they with uh, just general tastings? And Yep. Um, so we, I try to get them to taste new coffees as they arrive, um, whether it's uh, as a cupping or like a filter, like a pour over or siphon on the espresso bar or something like that. Um, and we also have uh, the roastery, uh, the staff of the roastery have organized uh, modules of training um, for them to go down to the roastery and learn how to cup and learn how to do all these things that um, coffee professionals who aren't stuck on an espresso bar can do. Um, and that's also really nice to sort of broaden their scope um, away from just chinos. To chinos. Chinos, mate. Um, I'm going to pass it over to the audience now. Do we have any specific questions on robots or? <laughs> yes, hello. Thank you very much. No, thank for you. I just would like to know, how did you do to get to got this wonderful job that you have? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would like to know more about that. How yeah. these people or your... Uh, bosses uh, became so flexible to yeah. allow you to design this kind of profession that you are now growing? Um, I, yeah, I sort of have the best job in coffee at the moment. Um, it's kind of nice. Uh, I know, have known Ross Quayle, one of the directors of St. Ali Sensory Lab. It's messy, but we'll call him a director um, for a fair while. Um, and he is great. I love everything that he's doing in specialty coffee. Um, and we've, you know, we've talked every so often and um, chatted about the coffee industry and he's in competition, I'm in competition. So we both talk a lot. Um, and I think I'm probably a little bit too outspoken. Um, I speak a lot, probably when I shouldn't. Um, and I think that attracts attention sometimes. Um, and I think Ross really likes the way I think. Um, he's, he sort of 
has a different way of thinking about things, but we both mesh very well. Um, and they, uh, they realized that they needed someone who knew about coffee who wasn't stuck on an espresso bar every single day. Um, and they had sort of gotten to the stage where their business needed um, someone who could just be like, fix that coffee thing, fix this coffee thing, this coffee thing um, needs improving, those baristas need training. And they could support that uh, without me having to be on an espresso bar all the time. And I think it's, it was just a giant cluster of everything happening at the right time um, and me um, looking for a job and then Ross saying, yeah, we're looking for someone to do this. Um, what do you want? And I said, I want to learn. All I want to do is learn. And then he was like, okay, I think we can figure something out for you. Um, and then it so have sort of been developed. I don't really have a job title. I was going to ask you, what's your job title? Yeah, like we've gone through about six job titles for me. Don't come up with one. Yeah. It's, it's pointless. It's pointless. I, like my job, I haven't had two days at St. Ali that have been the same yet. Um, I don't really have a desk. It just gets piled up with random stuff. I'm sort of everywhere. Um, and it's nice uh, to have a lot of autonomy and a lot of um, change. Anyone else? Yeah. Chrissy, Chris, Chris. Hi. Hi, Chris. Good talk. Um, that was rad. I think a lot of the things you said kind of hit home to where we're at too. And I had a question on one specific thing regarding the volumetric dosing. Yeah. And that was, um, how are you controlling the other side of that equation on the grinder's end? Meaning yes. like grind adjustment and uh, dose grinders. weight in. Grinders. Um, <laughs> so we trust our robos a fair bit, um, more than I would like to at this time. Uh, we have roberies, um, and we've found that they've actually been pretty good at the moment. They go, you know, they have fits some days, and then some days they're good, some days they're bad. Um, but what I've found is I tracked a couple of hundred espresso shots, um, weight in, weight out, volumetric, etc. Um, and same button on the espresso machine every single time, letting the robo do whatever it wanted to do and not adjusting it, just weighing it. And the volumetrics actually adjusted for the robo's inaccuracies. So that, uh, volumetrics have an error where if the pressure is higher, more water skips past the flow meter without being detected. So if your dose goes up, there's more pressure, so more water goes through the flow meter without it realizing, so your brew ratio actually kind of stays pretty similar. Um, and it's not perfect, don't get me wrong, yeah. but when I found it out, I was like, yes, that could have totally been the wrong way. Um, so we do rely on the volumetrics and that inherent error in the system to keep everything pretty solid. Um, but we put uh, the handle on scales every like 10 or 20 shots, um, and we also use, for our coffee of the day, we use a post-tamp dosing tool. So you dose out from your robo more than you need, tamp it, and then scrape it out according to height. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very accurate. Um, and that seems to be working quite well. But that's coming soon. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, Thanks, Chris. That's good knowledge. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this, but I figured I'd ask anyway. Hi, Jen. Hi. <laughs> um, I've been told I need to keep this up here. All of the data that you're collecting right now, yeah. are you ever going to be sharing that with everyone? I'd love to. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, there would need to be a lot of asterisks on things, <laughs> I think. Of course. Um, and people would have to understand what it was because uh, 
there'd be some stuff in there which looked the wrong way, would be really damning, and then someone would write about it, and then someone else would look at it and say, yeah, they're, do they're doing that really incorrectly. And um, So it could be quite bad to release that much data about something, but I think what I would like to release more so is just the findings that we make rather than the raw numbers, because we all know, uh, a la COE, how raw numbers can be data mined of course. Uh, badly. Because I know that John Gordon expressed an interest in the last tamper tantrum of collecting that sort of data yeah. and sharing it uh, across the board, sort of in a Google Doc or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And 3FE has been trying to collect as much of that information as possible. Unfortunately, we can't afford the iPads next to <laughs> the till, and we've we've noticed that that makes a massive difference in the willingness of yes. um, Britishers yes. to type things in. So, how long have you been running that sort of data collection? That's been even less. Before, it's it's been manual, so okay. we've had it like a notebook. Um, and that was really hard. Like, even I sucked at writing into the notebook. I was like, oh, I have to write in the notebook. It's going to be really annoying. Yep. It's going to take me, like, 30 seconds. I'm busy. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, but I think with an iPad, you just done. Makes it much easier. Uh, yeah, it's great. If you make it easy, the baristas will do it. Good to know. Yeah. Cheers. Hi, Matt. Hi. Um... Everything you said is extremely interesting, and having personally worked at St. Ali before you arrived, <laughs> sounds like it's changed quite a lot. <laughs> a lot. Good. I'm glad. Um, how do you feel that integrating this kind of work relationship with you, those two hours that you sit down with them, recording all this data, yep. has affected your baristas and influence their attitude towards coffee and do you feel that that has created a strong relationship with the roastery which despite being about 20 meters away seemed to be in another city when I was there yeah um, yeah I think it's great um, the baristas seem to be uh, like all of this move, moving forward seems to be a lot of people's um, like what's what gets them going in specialty coffee if they're like if they see progression they, there's like this burning sort of desire in everyone to see things get better. Um, and I think if you're working in an environment where anything goes as long as it tastes good and as long as we're doing things better than we were yesterday, um, people really, really respond to that well. Um, and in regards to the roastery being 20 metres away, um, when, I, yeah, when I first arrived, um, it seemed as though it was baristas and roasters and the roasters would always be like, coffee's not tasting so great today. And the baristas would be like, yeah, it's not... We can't blame you. Now the baristas can blame the roasters because they're like, oh, we're making it the same as we did all week. Uh, and it's a different roast batch. And that's your fault. <laughs> and then the roasters go, oh, yeah, that's our fault. Um, <laughs> we'll fix that. So I think, I think it's bringing everyone closer together um, because sometimes it can be the roasteries up here and then the espresso bar is the foot soldiers. Um, but, yeah, it's sort of bringing the balance yeah, a bit more. Thanks. No, that, thank you. That's great. Appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Um, hey, I just want to say you give a great presentation, and Thank I you. like your approach to with using scientific method to analyze coffee information. Because you should it, watch Anthony's speech tomorrow. It is <laughs> at times phantasmic, and uh, yes, I'm a believer in the scientific method along with art. So it's kind of the alchemy of which is coffee, but specifically about. Um, when you were talking about the micro lots in origin in Costa Rica, yeah. uh, I was just wondering if your point was to say, to just point out that 
that, that everybody, everybody wanting 20 bag lots as if that's a misconception or that you disagree with that approach or if you were saying that was more of the um, outsmalling each other or yes. if you were just saying you guys, you think 150 bag lot also can be a micro lot and you'd like that to be something that's made available. Yes. Um, I think it's like I totally agree with micro lots being amazing and you can learn so much from them. Um, and I think it was the last point you made. We would like to see that same level of quality in a larger lot um, because they have it and it's not necessarily lot eight, lot nine and lot ten. Um, I don't, sometimes people wouldn't actually achieve that level of differentiation between them. So why don't we offer the same thing to more people? at the same time, rather than offering three different things to a lot of people, um, you can actually have something which is um, quite consistent and far-reaching. Um, it seems as though it's amplifying a message of a single coffee rather than um, sort of dumbing it down and not letting some people have it and um, it only reaching so far. I think if you have a lot of a really good coffee, um, it can go very far. And a lot of people still are buying 20-bag lots, of course, and we're buying lots of 20-bag lots. Um, from Costa Rica in our next container. Um, but it was just interesting to see that the farmers only thought specialty coffee buyers wanted 20-bag lots. Uh, well, and I think that is probably the pendulum swinging just to yes. the other end of the spectrum. But yeah. I still can't help but think that that... I mean, not to say that it should be one or the other, which is no. maybe your point. And I, and I don't disagree with that. But I think that the, what you're talking about, scientific method and approach uh, that, we're, that you're, you're pursuing in... The, in the in the at the bar level, it can, needs to just keep happening more. Also at the farm level, yes. and so like the lady you're talking about who broke up her farm geographically. I mean, my background I used to do GIS for a living, and I all we did was study topography and layers and aspect. And yeah, it's I mean Columbia. They're doing it. There's certain people doing it, but I think there's a lot to give there. And the number one way you can really find out what happened is really cupping cupping blind small lots and building them. And, of course, and yeah. So I just. Yeah, yeah Carol um, Spinden of Finca Il Kisara had this spreadsheet up in her um, dry mill of every lot and every, think of every piece of information that you could get about a coffee, how it was processed the day, the sugar content, variety, uh, was it sunny when they picked it, um, like everything, it was totally anal. Um, she's Swiss, she's not Costa Rican, that's probably why. But uh, it was, the whole place was run like a clock and she could say, yeah, that valley wasn't actually performing so well this year. So we're not including it in that big lot. We're going to pull that out. So I think they still need to separate it all and it's great that they are, but then they can actually be empowered to bring it back together again. Yeah, because I think you can combine 20 bag lots the same way you can combine three bag day lots yeah. to make a 20 bag lot yeah. and take 20 bags of course. times. And if, and if there is an outlier that's amazing, you keep it as an outlier because it's special I and mean, you need to protect that. But there's also a lot of the majority. Um, why make like a couple of magnums of really nice coffee when, I mean, really nice wine when you could make a lot? Cool. Thanks. Yeah. No worries. Any more questions, anyone? I think we might off easy. wrap it up. Have we heard the um, semi-finalists for the... No? Still waiting over there? Okay. Cool. Well, thank you, Matt. No. Thanks, too. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>